Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. Thank you, Alex. Good morning, Imago Day. It's good to be with you. Can we uh, welcome our online audience this morning as well? <clears throat> we know that many of you who are uh, watching online are also part of this story of what's happening midweek and uh, jumping in through all of these uh, arenas. And so we thank you for that. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And we're in a series this fall talking about how do we hear the voice of God. And today I want to talk about how do we hear God in this space? How does God speak to us in community, in church? And while that may seem like a, a given for some of you, I know there's a lot of you who are like, yeah, I would like to hear the answer to that. And so what I want to do is we've used this story of, in Luke 24 as sort of an anchoring story for this series. And it's a story where Jesus meets this couple uh, on the road to Emmaus, who are, who are leaving Jerusalem and heading to this place called Emmaus, about seven miles out of Jerusalem, after Jesus has been crucified, and after he has supposedly risen from the dead, though they have just heard sort of rumors about that. And they are his followers, they are his disciples, and Jesus does this really kind of bizarre thing as he slides up next to him incognito and begins this conversation with them. And he uh, asks them, why are you so downcast? And they explain, well, man, have, are you the only one who hasn't been paying attention? Like, a lot's gone down in the last few days. We have uh, our hearts, we had our hearts set on Jesus. We thought he was the one, the Messiah, but he was crucified by the Romans, and he was buried, and we thought he was the one that would restore Israel. And some of our own disciples, some of our own people have said that he uh, wasn't at the tomb. His body was missing. And Jesus says to them, and this is where we'll pick up in verse 24, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in, and he stayed with them. And when he's at the table with them, he takes the bread, and he gives thanks. And he breaks it, and he begins to give it to them. And immediately their eyes are opened, and they recognize him. And he disappeared from their sight. And then each asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road 
and then open the scriptures to us. After this, they run to their uh, other brothers and sisters in the, the, their disciples and tell them what they've seen. And Jesus appears later on to this group of disciples. And in verse 36, it says, while they were still talking about all of this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. And they're startled and they're frightened and they think they see a ghost. And he says, why are you so troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And as you look at this story, you see several components that later on are repeated in the book of Acts and essentially make up what we do every Sunday morning. And they're the components of story and symbol and sign and simple community. We see this when Jesus un unlocks the scriptures for them and what the story really is. We see this when he breaks the bread in the sacrament. And we see this when he shows up in power and they receive a sign, their eyes are open and they understand. And then together in this small, very simple community, they begin to speak to each other, the Lord is risen, the Lord is risen. It's really important that we understand that when Jesus is telling them about the scriptures, right? When it says he opened the story from Moses to the prophets, he's not just finding a verse here and there and going, where was it? Where was it? Let me see. There was something about me in the Psalms. Okay, here it is. Yeah, this one fits. But he was saying that this whole story, right, of scripture is about me. It was pointing to this moment. It was pointing to what just happened on the cross. It was pointing to the resurrection. It was pointing to me. The whole story of Scripture points to Jesus as the hope of the world. N.T. Wright says this about this passage. It was always the story of how the Creator God, Israel's covenant God, would bring about His saving purposes for the world to birth through the suffering and vindication of Israel. And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. It could never be a matter of just a few little proof texts. It was the entire narrative, the complete storyline, the whole world of prayer and hope that focused on Israel as the bearer of God's promises for the world, and then after they're taken off into captivity, the remnant of Israel as the bearer of Israel's destiny, and finally on Israel's true king, 
upon whom the task of even every remnant would count on. He was the one, Jesus is the one, who is the servant of the servant people. He is the one who did for Israel and for us what Israel and us could not do for ourselves. And so getting the story right really matters. Now what's interesting, they believed in Jesus. They were his disciples. They just didn't have the story right. They didn't understand how Jesus fit into the story. And that slowness of heart and lack of belief in the prophets hadn't been pure spiritual blindness. It was kind of a matter of living the wrong story or the right story in the wrong way. But suddenly, they have the right story now in their head and their hearts. Jesus opens it up for them. Here he is, the world's true king. It's this huge, astonishing, breathtaking Story and new possibilities start to emerge for him, as N.T. Wright says. And when we understand the story that points to Jesus as the king of the world and of our lives, it changes how we understand not only ourselves, but our world and God's purposes and what it means to be his followers in it. And so they believed in Jesus before the crucifixion, but they didn't know the story. And so when the crucifixion happened, the only way they can interpret it was the triumph of Rome over someone that they hoped to be the Messiah. The government triumphed over God's people, and so they continued to remain under Oppression, they're defeated, they're despondent, and Jesus shows up and he opens the scriptures to them. And so they have Jesus, in other words, they have the key, but it's not fitting in the right door. They have the wrong door. And Jesus comes along and he goes, no, here's the door. I'm the key and we're going to open the right door and I'm going to show you that the cross was not an example of, of governments throughout the world again triumphing over God's people, but it was actually the means where God defeats evil once and for all. That's what the cross was. This is how the exile of Israel is going to end this is how sins are going to be forgiven. This is how the kingdom of God is going to break in. This is what God's light and truth look like, and it comes unexpectedly through this crucified and resurrected Messiah. And so when we ask the question, how does God speak to his people in community? In one sense, it can be kind of like, well, this is sort of boring because he does it consistently, weekly, in and out, when we tell the whole story of Scripture in a way that reveals the fullness of Jesus and his reign in us and over us. And what that does when we really capture it is it both creates in us a radical type of discipleship 
that has a vision of Jesus as the hope of the world and the hope of our lives, but also empowers us to engage the world with a radical kind of self-sacrificial servanthood and love, while simultaneously it critiques all the other doors, all the other stories that the world is telling. We live in a very pluralistic world. And so we come in here once a week, we open the scriptures, we listen to the scriptures, we sing the scriptures, and yet we live in a world that is constantly operating through, uh, because it's a pluralist society, meaning there's not one main story, there's tons of stories, but they all kind of fall under some overarching views of the world. And, and, and we oftentimes are like those two disciples on Emmaus Road. We believe in Jesus, but we're trying to squeeze him into these other stories, and we're getting frustrated because we're not sure how this lock fits in this door, when the reality is we're in the wrong story. Mark Sayers talks about the the kind of four overarching stories that are operating in the world now. And he got it from somebody else, and I forget that guy's name. Um, so sorry, that guy, because you're, you're really the smart one. Um, but, but he talks about, and, and you can kind of see these cascading down as they cr critique one another, um, the first worldview is hedonism, essentially. Now, no one, again, walks around going, this is my worldview. I'm a hedonist, right? Nobody says that. Um, this is just a, a view of the world that says, I want to, to have great experiences. I want money. I want pleasure. Maybe I want power, Consumerism fits nicely into this. If you think about what most of the Instagrams look like when Instagram first came out, right? It was pictures of, look what I'm eating, look what I'm drinking, I'm having a great experience. Um, and then people like built, built platforms because they're having great experiences. That's hedonism. And the sin that's underneath that is the sin of preventing me from attaining those things. And so this can manifest itself in a whole bunch of different ways. In politics, on both sides of politics, it can manifest itself in uh, all kinds of ideologies. But the problem with faith in this view is that faith essentially is a bummer. Because faith is always like, well, money, you know, give it to the church and pleasure, well, not too much of it. And power, you know, we're supposed to use that to serve other people. And so faith is preventing us from what I want, right? And so hedonism sort of has blanketed us with the, the American dream in many ways, um, Another one is the moralistic worldview. And this, this is we, we are to do good and we want to do good and make yourself look like you're doing good. We want to be on the right side of things. We want to make a contribution. 
This is why the Instagrams went from, look at me, I'm drinking the best stuff and eating the best food, to look at me, I'm supporting the best causes. I'm virtue signaling. I'm letting the world know that I'm on the right side of things. This is a moralistic worldview. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm on the right side. And this can show up again on any political spectrum, left or right. But it's about showing that I am doing good. And sin, then, is oppression caused by ignorance. Now, Scripture and the gospel, like, there's going to be truth in all of these. There's going to be parts of these that are good. But faith in the moralistic framework is a problem because faith is one of the big oppressors. It oppresses us with the wrong moral code. It calls us to faith in something, uh, to a particular story. And so it's oppressive in that sense. And again, nobody is just in one of these. Just so you know, you're flying around all these all the time. On one hand, you're like, yes, I'm for the right causes. And then you're like, oh man, that new iPhone is so cool. I wish I'd like to be for the right causes with that. You know, like we're all over the place all the time. And then there's the therapeutic worldview. This is like, we want peace. We want the world is bad, the world is dangerous, the world causes problems, and so we want peace and we want safety from anything that might hurt us. And so in this place, the world is what causes these things, people cause these things, and, and faith in this is simply a tool. It's a tool that we use to get peace, but it's really limited to that. It's not a place of truth, it's not a place of values, it's just, I, you know, I go into this prayer thing and I, oh, I'm, I find my peace. But then I go live my life and it doesn't like affect those things. And so sin becomes anything that causes mental or emotional pain. Now, again, Jesus isn't going around going, oh, that's stupid. Let's cause everyone mental, emotional pain, right? There's aspects of truth to this. But if you make it your goal in life to say that I will be righteous because I have enough stuff, or I will be righteous because I'm always on the right side of every cause, or I will be righteous because I have protected myself from any pain that I might be caused, your life will not work. You will not be a person of peace. If you do get away with your moralism, you will go from being the, the oppressed to the oppressor. We will have a whole new religion of moralistic Pharisees that go around pointing out each other's sin all the time. And finally, a worldview that is emerging before our eyes and the youngest generation among us is nihilism, where nothing matters. Because sin is everywhere, 
Sin is corrupting everything. The world is a disaster. Every system is disaster. Faith is corrupt. And so there's nothing to believe in and nothing to trust in. And all of these blend together in us. None of us go around saying, I'm a moralist with a little bit of hedonism. And then on Fridays, I do a little nihilistic thing. And then, right, that's, none of us are doing that. And, and, and this isn't one type of person. So because I know as you hear these, you're naming people, right? <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, that's the, yep, yeah, he's that guy. But just know that this is like um, end times preppers too can fit in some of these models, right? The people that are like, going away and saving up all their food and going underground, that is a moralistic version of this. Not that that's you. Um, But I'm just saying, don't pinpoint everybody and think you know who they are. Because this is about us. We're floating through these things. And, And most of the time, if we're a Christian, we're trying to find Jesus in our worldview. And we're like Cleopas and his partner going, man, I got Jesus. I just don't know how it makes sense. So we might do hedonism and go, man, God wants you blessed and rich and all these things. And the truth is, God does want you to enjoy your life and enjoy creation, right? He doesn't want you to live in abject poverty. But he doesn't, want you, he doesn't need you to own a, a, you know, your own jet so to speak, especially the pastor doesn't need one of those. There are things, like God is against oppression. He is a God of justice. But it's different that we don't make ourselves righteous by fighting for justice. We recognize our own injustice and there's only one who is righteous and we join him in fighting oppression. And so all of these tend to blend together, and most of the time we're like, I think Jesus fits here, and I think he fits here, and maybe he fits here, and really we're like them walking around with a key, but we're knocking on all the wrong doors, when all, ultimately we, there is one story, and it is a story of the Father, Son, and Spirit, who created a good world for us to enjoy. And said, be fruitful and enjoy shalom, peace with God, peace with each other, peace with creation. And human rebellion came in and caused a break from God, from each other, from the world, and fractured relationships and systems. And it kept growing and exists to this day. But God didn't just turn his back on us. God came after us and his world to restore and to redeem and to bring about new creation. And he did it through this really random story called Abraham and Sarah who become Israel. And then through Israel, Jesus and the son, Jesus Christ, took on our flesh, entered our humanity as the perfect human. He lived as the perfect human. He suffered under political, religious, and spiritual forces 
on a cross. But what they didn't see is that his crucifixion and death was the way that God would restore, redeem our creation and our lives. And when he rose from the dead, he brought a new creation into being and he ascended into heaven as king of the world. And he left these weird little outposts called the church. And he filled those with those who would call Jesus Lord and trust in Jesus to be their joy, to be their goodness, to be enough, to be their righteousness, to be their security. And that they would boldly and humbly join him in participating in bringing that kingdom to earth, announcing that our good God loves you. Now here's where the church gets screwed up. When we don't know about Jesus as king, we try to find a different king. When we don't know about the kingdom of God, we create a kingdom out of the church. And that's where we are today. And it's because we haven't consistently, weekly come together as his people to listen to the whole story of scripture. Understanding that it's revealing to us the fullness of Jesus and his reign in us and over us. Critiquing us, but also converting us. And so if we think we don't need that, I would just encourage you to go back to those other stories. They will not save us. They will not satisfy us. And they will not heal the world. Only Jesus will. God speaks to his people in community through consistently opening up and telling the whole story that reveals the fullness of Christ and his reign. The second thing that we do in the way that God speaks to us in community is through symbol or sacrament, bread and wine. It's interesting that as soon as they hear the scriptures open up about Jesus and a strange realization begins to creep over them, he go, they bring him into the house and he goes in the house. Instead of sitting there waiting for like, what are we having? He assumes the role of host. And every time we gather together, we gather at Jesus's table where Jesus is the host. And Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it. And it's then that they recognize him and he vanishes. And it's that recognition that the story of the last hour itself suddenly makes sense. And it's this symbol and praxis. This is what we do every single week. This Sunday is our, well, I think it was last Sunday. We, keep, we screw this up every year, but it's our, one of these Sundays Last Sunday or this Sunday was our 20, is our, was our 22nd anniversary as a church. Yeah. We've been gambling, playing the lottery, doing all kinds of stuff for a whole year now, and it has been wonderful. I'm just kidding. It's a 21-year-old joke. Didn't work. Does not, do not do that as the pastor of a church. Um, but since day one, we have had an open communion table. When there were 15 of us, we had open communion. And it's this praxis that's powerful 
because the bread and the wine points to something that is inside of the bread and the wine, but also beyond the bread and the wine. And it's important that we practice it because there is something beyond words that we need. And there is something beyond words that we are dealing with when we're dealing with God. And God knows that. And so Jesus, in like the, all that he did, God coming to redeem the world, right? To die on the cross, to restore this whole story from Moses and the prophets, the way that he sums it up and symbolizes it, go, give me a piece of bread and a glass of wine. Oh yeah, this is gonna be perfect. Sets it down and he breaks it. Says, this is my body. And then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood, which is poured out. And there is something about smelling it, tasting it, touching it, chewing it, eating it, digesting it, where Jesus as the host invites us to eat and drink this symbol that is central to his victorious work. And so we come to the table as we are. And when we come every week, we are at once all together before Jesus' broken body and shed blood. And at the same time, we are individually dealing with ourselves and God before the cross and the resurrection. There is a power and a mystery to that sacrament that where God speaks into our whole being in the practice of communion, that words just cannot, thinking cannot communicate. But we touch it, we taste it, we smell it, we see it, we're physically eating it after Jesus has blessed it and broken it. And every week, we hear the story and we eat the symbol. And then finally, there is the sign that somehow, some way, that the part where their hearts are burning within them, the Holy Spirit shows up. And, and sometimes that's when we're praying together. Sometimes it's in the middle of the sermon. Sometimes it's when you're dealing with God at the table. Sometimes it's in the middle of worship. But it's that we're are not our hearts burning within us. Jesus speaks and he reveals and he encounters us in ways that are particular to us. And it, it may not be every week that you experience that sign that God is here, but there are moments and there are times where God uses you as the sign to speak to someone else. And God speaks by weaving together story and symbol into worship where he reveals himself to us as the congregation. And he meets us there. And there have been so many Sundays where, where we walk out and go, I, I know that God met me. There are so many people that come up and say, that sermon did this, this, and this in my life. And sometimes they misunderstood what I said. I was like, that's not what I, and, but you're not going to like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Because they're like, yeah, it changed my whole thing. You're like, okay, good. 
So somewhere between my mouth and your ear, Jesus was like, yeah, that's not quite right. I'm going to fix that. <laughs> Boop. And it's like, ta-da, his life is better. God meets us, and that's the sign. And the final one is just simple community. They go back and their testimony to each other, it turns into eager story. They hurry back to Jerusalem, and they're, with their own, the news is there, and they're answering news from each other. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen, and they are encouraging each other. In Acts chapter 2, we find that this pattern of story and symbol and sign and simple community is repeated. The apostles pick this up from Luke 24 right into the story of Acts, and they just repeat this simple way of hearing God together. In Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. And so we have story. The apostles teach the whole story of Jesus. We have symbol. We, they break the bread together. They have sign that they are filled with awe and wonders and signs are performed that the Holy Spirit is present among them and they have simple community. Just we're together. We have everything in common and we're going to meet in temple courts and in homes. And these are not like, oh, that's crazy historical Christianity. We need to get to back to the Acts church it's like these are normal markers of historical Christianity. This is how God speaks in Christian community. And so when we ask the question, how do we hear the voice of God together? It's going back to where the church has always been in the habit of practicing. Story, symbol, sign, and each other with Jesus as the center of the story, Jesus as the host at the table, Jesus as the one who reveals himself to us in sign and promise that when we gather, he's in our midst. And so as we wrap up today, I wanna challenge us. Do we know what we're here for? Do we know why we come and are we listening? Are, are we just trying to, to use Jesus as a key to unlock our own door to this other story that we're trying to live or are we willing to enter his story where we're not the hero, we are the humble recipient of grace? And so we don't have to become the hypocrite. We can become the sinner that is gratefully announcing the pathway to the Savior. Are we coming into this space as participants or spectators? In other words, listening 
it, it requires that we are active in the conversation. And, and that means as we sing, as we come to the table, that we're hearing and we're responding to Jesus. And there's a difference between I, I want to have this single encounter, I want to go to church, and I want to have this mountaintop experience, and a lifelong pattern of developing this in your life, like this being ingrained as a practice of transformation, that I'm going to continue to come back and have the story told over me. I'm going to continue to go to the table and take part in the mystery of that sacrament. I'm going to be with God's people in prayer and, and experience his presence as a sign. And when you have that kind of intentionality, year in and year out, there's a transformation that takes place. And hopefully we begin to look and act and speak more like Jesus in this world and not like some other worldview with a Jesus fish slapped on its back. Today I want to invite you to this table as the worship team comes. It's a table that was created for you by Jesus. And the, the shape of this table is also the shape that the church is supposed to continually take as it hears God's voice in community. It's a Eucharistic shape, meaning just as Jesus took the bread, he takes us, he chooses us to be his. Just as he blesses the bread, he blesses us as his sons and daughters. And just as he breaks the bread, he breaks us. He breaks us of our pride. He breaks us of our false stories. He breaks us of the, or we come broken, right? But it's in that brokenness, it's in that place where we are these broken jars that he can fill and that his light can therefore pour out. So after that, then he gives us to the world that the world might taste and see through us that rather than being appalled, they would have a pleasing aroma of Christ. And so today I invite you to this table that Jesus has set for you. Because I believe that God is speaking again to us today as he has every week for 22 years. And he's inviting us to, to hear, to listen. But not just listen, but also respond. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our king, our crucified and resurrected Lord. You are God of, that reigns over this world, a world that has caused 
us much pain, that has made us run and try to find peace and safety. A world full of oppression and injustice that has made us want to fight it in ways that oftentimes make us guilty of condemning other people, God. A world that is so filled with goodness, God, that we are guilty of taking way too much for ourselves and never being satisfied. A world that has so many stories and so much sorrow and sin that we have a generation coming up that doesn't believe in anything. God, it's into that world and this world and this moment that you have come, that you have spoken, that you continually reign and that you have placed us, your people, for this time, for this moment. So I ask that you would speak to our hearts today that we would live fully into the full story that we would hear your voice and that we would be faithful to obey it. So speak, Lord. Your people are listening. Amen.